This is the word of the Lord according to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 28. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. Uh, it is good to be with you, uh, with all of you this morning. And um, as always, if uh, you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one in the back. Um, if you don't have one at home at all, please take one of those home with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, we'll have some of the passages up on the screens uh, as well as we kind of work our way through uh, Mark. So we're in the middle of a series preaching uh, through the gospel according to Mark, and we arrive now to Mark chapter 9. Now, as many of you know, uh, in, in addition to serving as one of your pastors, uh, I also work a couple of days a week at the hospital. And when you are seeing a patient at the hospital, one of the more important things uh, in, in getting a successful treatment plan for someone is to first make an accurate diagnosis. Which, which makes sense, right? I mean, I think everyone can understand that. Like, if you're going to give the right treatment, uh, if you're going to be able to do that, you really have to understand what the underlying problem is. Uh, for example, you're not going to give someone an antibiotic if it, this is an allergic reaction. It's just not going to be very helpful. If someone has something wrong with their knee, you're probably not going to give them shoulder exercises to do uh, unless you're just trying to distract them from the knee altogether, okay? Or unless there's something weird going on that I'm not aware of, right? Uh, but, but ultimately, you need to have a proper diagnosis if you want then to move forward with the right successful treatment plan. And our passage this morning, it's going to help to reveal to us a problem that we all have. Okay, this is a problem that we all have. It's a diagnosis that we're all going to be diagnosed with today as we look through this passage. And this problem is called unbelief. 
unbelief. And just so we can get on the same page as to what I mean by unbelief, um, I I think Pastor Brad House at Sojourn, who he's one of the pastors in our church planting network, uh, he gives us a helpful definition here of what unbelief means. He says, unbelief is a failure to see and believe what is true about God, the world, and ourselves. And we're going to leave that definition up for a little while until we jump into the text. But unbelief is a failure to see and believe what is true about God, the world, and ourselves. You see, ever since temptation to sin entered into the world, ever since it entered into the Garden of Eden, unbelief has been creeping its way into the heart's of God's people. I mean, isn't that what the enemy tempted them with, with Adam and Eve? He said, did God really say that? Like, is that really, like, are, 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 you know, they was trying to plant seeds of unbelief in, in what God really said and what was really true about God and themselves and the world around them. And unbelief took root in the heart of Adam and Eve. And and there was a failure for them to see and believe what was really true about God, what was really true about the world that he created, and what was really true about themselves. And the bad news is that now every descendant of Adam and Eve has been born now with this propensity towards unbelief. Unbelief. And we arrive at a passage in Mark where Jesus has just come down off of the mountaintop where he had taken his, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He'd taken them up onto the mountaintop and he'd revealed to them his glory. He'd, he'd, he'd confirmed once again that he is a God in the flesh. And now we're picking up the story as they're coming down from the mountain. And what we need to see today is that we need to first see how unbelief is diagnosed in all the different characters in this story that we're going to read about today. And we're going to see how unbelief can play out differently in each of their stories. But then we need to see the treatment plan that Jesus provides to help remedy our unbelief. Because there is a treatment plan available to us to remedy our unbelief. And so as we're going through this passage, church, this is your job. I want you to be prayerfully considering how unbelief plays itself out in your own life. Are you going to be able to relate best to the the scribes in our passage, the religious leaders? Are you going to be able to relate best to the son who has these seizures and is, is possessed? Are you going to be able to relate best with the disciples who are, are failing at what they're trying to do? Or are you going to be able to relate best to this desperate father? But regardless of who you can relate and kind of see yourself, how, it, how unbelief plays out in this passage, regardless of who you can relate to the most, we're going to see Jesus' remedy for the problem of unbelief in our passage. Now, no spoilers for those who've read ahead, but let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into Mark 9, verse 14. Father, we, we come to your word today knowing, God, that, that, that your word has, has the power to change and transform us, 
It has the power to give faith, to to open our eyes to the truth. It has the power to convict us. It has the power to comfort us. It has the power to challenge us and to encourage us. And so, Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of that. And that, Holy Spirit, that you would move powerfully as your word goes forth. May you give us ears to hear. May you give us hearts that will receive this. And so we ask that all this would be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Remember, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, they've come down from the mountaintop. They've come down from, you know, witnessing and experiencing the glory of Jesus. And now they come, they're reuniting with the other disciples to see that the other disciples are surrounded by a crowd and they're arguing with the scribes, who the scribes were some of the religious leaders of that day. I mean, isn't this so, so often how what happens after our mountaintop experiences, right? I mean, life just kind of slaps them in the face, all right? There's no more retreat on top of the mountain with Jesus. This is like real life. The crowd's there. The religious leaders are there. An argument is going on. And this is what Jesus, Peter, James, and John are stepping into as they come down off of the mountain. Now, these scribes, they were, they were very knowledgeable about God's law. Okay, and these scribes, they were teachers of the people, and, and they were highly respected and, and, and thought of highly by, by the people in that time. But in the New Testament, we often see recorded, what we see recorded are these scribes that are always just in arguments. They're always in disputes with Jesus and his disciples. And here, once again, we find them arguing. They're arguing. And this word arguing is more than just having a difference of opinion. It's a stronger word than even just having a a lively debate about some theological issues. No, this word arguing, it, it carries with it the connotation that they were attacking the disciples. It's a combative word. They were on the attack. They were looking for a fight. Maybe not a physical fight, but at least a theological fight. And, and you see, they, they see an opportunity here where, where Jesus is gone. He's taken uh, the inner three. They see an opportunity to kind of go after the second string, right? They're like, okay, we haven't won any arguments so far, but now is our time, okay? Jesus is gone. You know, Peter, James, and John, they're gone. Let's go and let's argue, You see, the religious leaders of that day, in their unbelief, in their failure to see and believe what is true about God and his world and themselves, it led them to pursue arguments with Jesus and his followers. We we only on rare occasions see the religious leaders of that day honestly seeking truth, like we do in the case of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus privately. But mainly what we see in the New Testament is that the well-educated religious leaders, the studious intellectuals, we see their unbelief play out in arguments, in arguments. You see, they weren't really looking for truth. They were looking to be comforted by winning an argument. 
They weren't really just wanting to have a debate and, and learn from, from you know, other people and really seek truth. No, they were looking to win an argument. You see, some people's unbelief, it makes them feel insecure and uneasy. And so what they'll do is they'll pursue just consuming more and more knowledge so that they have more knowledge than those around them so that they can win an intellectual argument. And by doing so, that gives them some comfort and peace in their unbelief. Because, hey, at least I know more than the person next to me. And while this certainly is not an example to follow, it is the reality, it is a reality that some people, both back then and right now, in their unbelief, we will seek more knowledge to comfort ourselves. Like, if I can just learn all that there is to know, then maybe this restlessness that my unbelief is causing me, maybe it will be quieted down if I can just learn more and more and more. Or maybe this uneasiness that this unbelief is causing, maybe if I can go and prove that I know more than my friend, or I can prove that I can argue better than someone else, maybe that will help me feel better in my unbelief. Maybe you've been a skeptic of Christianity, and maybe if you can go and pick an argument with a Christian, who, and you can maybe win that argument, maybe that's going to give you a little bit more comfort and peace in your unbelief, to know that you're more knowledgeable and a better debater and arguer. Or maybe you're a Christian and there are a lot of doctrines and things that the Bible says that you really wrestle with and you really struggle with seeing and believing all that the Bible says is true about God, the world, and yourself. And so you, you read and read and read for more knowledge and then you go find a less knowledgeable person and then you argue with them to try to give yourself some temporary rest from this uneasiness of unbelief. Now listen, gaining knowledge and learning and studying, those are good things that we should all be growing in our knowledge of God. We should all should be, be, be growing and learning and developing our intellect. But if we do that, apart from this remedy for our unbelief that Jesus provides us, it's, it's bad news. It's bad news. It's a false sense of, of rest and comfort, but it does not remedy the problem of unbelief if it, that is all that is done. And notice the scribes. They're, they're also not really doing anything to help the situation, right? I mean, it's not like they've offered another solution for this boy who's possessed with having the seizures and this father who's desperate. No, but because of their unbelief, they're content to just stay on the sidelines of ministry and gain more knowledge and gain more knowledge. And some of you, in your unbelief, you're actually afraid to, to follow after Jesus and to actually love and serve people. You're afraid to put what you believe into action, and so you feel much safer just consuming more knowledge, right? Right? No, I'm not, I'm not ready to get onto the field of ministry. I just need to gain more knowledge. I just need more information. And I'll just stay back on the sidelines and I'll, I'll criticize and argue with those who are actually playing the game. But for me, I'll just stay back. 
Or maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not how your unbelief plays out. Maybe your unbelief plays out in rejoicing over the failures of others. Look back at Mark 9, verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And so now we, we're starting to see what they were arguing about, right? We see that a father has brought his son who is possessed by a demon and who's having these seizures, and he's asked the disciples to cast it out, and they are not able to do it. They tried, but they failed. You can imagine how great this must have been for the scribes, right? I mean, the religious leaders of that day, always trying to argue and, and prove, you know, who's right, who's wrong. They were probably ecstatic to have a crowd there to witness this failure of the disciples of Jesus. And isn't this how we see unbelief play out with people today? In their unbelief, they enjoy seeing Christians fail and fall. And there are people who, in their unbelief, they won't follow Jesus because, hey, look at all the failures of those that follow after Jesus. I mean, look at that pastor who had that affair. I mean, look at that church leader who stole that money. Or look at that church who allowed that abuse. Or, or, or look at this other church who failed me when I was really in need. And the uneasiness that their unbelief causes them, it's temporarily helped by looking at the failures of Christians and saying, see, I told you, they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? People sit back and they're eased to know, oh yeah, they are hypocrites. Why would I want to follow after Jesus if that's what his followers look like? And even some Christians who maybe say, okay, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, but I'm not going to be a part of a church. Like, do you see all the, the hypocrisy that happens in the church? So maybe, is this how you've thought in the past? Now listen, don't be deceived into thinking that hypocrisy is just a problem in the church. It most definitely is a problem in the church. I won't argue against that. But my argument is that it's not just a church problem. Hypocrisy is a humanity problem, okay? Case in point, the McDonald's by my house is always packed, right? I mean, two lanes going through the drive-thru, people just like lined up down the block to get to McDonald's. Now, we live now in a society and culture like we know, we know that is not real food, right? We know, like we've watched the documentaries, we realize that they are supersizing us, like they, you know, they, like we know that, right? But it's still packed, okay? So don't try the argument that just Christians are hypocrites. I'm telling you, hypocrisy is a humanity problem, not just a church problem. And since churches are made up of human beings, yes, there is hypocrisy in the church. But listen, gospel-preaching churches are the only places that offer a solution to this hypocrisy that we see in the world. 
The gospel is the remedy for hypocrisy in our world. This good news that God saves sinners and that this salvation was accomplished by Jesus and this salvation is all by God's grace, his undeserved favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. It's just a gift that is received. It's only when that gospel message is preached and believed and received that frees us from this hypocrisy of living a virtuous life in public and yet hiding our private sin. So I don't buy that Christians are hypocrites, and that's why I don't want to be in a church. Hypocrisy, it's a, it's a humanity problem. But the gospel, it frees us from living like hypocrites. It frees us to expose the, the, the sin that we deal with behind closed doors because we can trust and rest in the forgiveness that we have in Christ and we can trust and rest that we are received by God not because of our righteousness or our rightness but because of the rightness of Christ that he clothes us in. So maybe unbelief has played out this way for you like it did with the scribes. Maybe you can really relate to the scribes in this passage. Your unbelief has caused you to acquire a great deal of knowledge to pursue arguments, to stay on the sidelines, and to just watch the failures of others. Or maybe you can relate more to the Son in this passage. Look back at Mark 9, verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Jesus then later on in the passage, he asked the father, hey, how long has this been going on for? And the father says, since childhood. I mean, can you imagine this boy's life? Can you imagine this father's life who loves his son and is raising him and trying to protect him and wants to see him have a, a happy and a, a healthy and a joyful life. Maybe some of you have had or have known someone who has seizures. When someone has a seizure, it's a pretty dramatic thing most of the time, because someone loses control, right? They often lose consciousness, and they start convulsing. They can't control what their body is doing, and they can, it can be a great harm to them and to others around them because they don't have control. And then John Mark, who's, who's recording this for us, he's telling us, and this isn't just epilepsy either. Like, this isn't just a normal seizure disorder, but he's saying this boy is possessed by a demon, now, that's not to say that everyone who has seizures is possessed by a demon. No, not at all, right? There are medical reasons for seizures, but in this situation, John Mark is explaining that these were not just ordinary seizures. These were seizures caused by an outside evil influence. This is a horrific situation. This boy is helpless. He's under the influence of something outside of his control. It's outside of his dad's control. I mean, parents, isn't that just like the worst, most helpless feeling when something's happening to your child that is outside of your control? I mean, I know we try to reinforce the bubble we put around our children, 
But you will find there will be things in life that are outside of your control. So this is a sad situation. The good news is we know this, this ends well. But this is a sad situation, but because as a result of sin and as a result of unbelief in the world, this is the condition of, of many people. There are many people in the world who are under the influence and blinding effect of evil without even realizing it. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. He writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Lowercase g, God of this world, the enemy. He's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, there are those whose unbelief plays out with a continual hardening of the heart and a continual blinding of their eyes. And they're naive to the fact that they're blind. They're naive to the fact that there is an enemy who is oppressing them and blinding them to the truth. And I think we all deep down believe this and we know this when we pray for people who have not put their faith in Jesus, right? We pray for Jesus to rescue them, to open their eyes, to free them, to, to be able to believe and follow after him. This boy needs to be rescued from the enemy so that his life can be free to believe and follow after Jesus. And so we pray, we plead with God for those that don't believe Jesus is their Lord and their Savior. We pray that God would open their eyes, that he would reveal to them the glory of Christ. So, so far we've seen unbelief. It's, it's playing out in all sorts of ways in this passage. Sometimes unbelief plays out like it does with the scribes, right? People in their uneasiness of unbelief, they just want to gain more knowledge, 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 argue, 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 sit back, watch other people fail. But then unbelief also plays out sometimes with people not even realizing they're being blinded. They're naive to the fact that there is an influence in the world that is keeping them from the truth. Well, unbelief, it also plays out in another way. It plays out like it does here with the disciples. So look back at Mark 9, verse 19. Jesus speaks in verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Okay, you see, with the disciples, casting out demons was something that they had done in the past. Okay? Back in Mark 6, verse 7, we saw Jesus call the twelve, and he sends them out, and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. And so this is something the disciples have done before, okay? This isn't like their first uh, time at it. They've gone, and they've, they've battled like the enemy, and they've cast out demons before. But here they fail. They fail at it. Why? Verse 19. Jesus says, O faithless generation, referring to the unbelief of all of them, including the disciples. And then when the disciples ask later on why they couldn't cast it out, what Jesus says in verse 29, okay, Mark 9, verse 29, this is a big verse. If I've lost you, come back to me, okay? Because here in verse 29, we're going to see the remedy for our unbelief. Mark 9, 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some Bible manuscripts, they include prayer and fasting, uh, but not all the early manuscripts included that word fasting, and therefore the ESV editors, which is the version we use, they decided to leave off the word fasting. But that's why, you know, depending on the version of the Bible you have, some will say prayer, some will say prayer and fasting but it really doesn't change the, the meaning of the text. Jesus said that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So listen, church, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a few minutes, but prayer is the remedy for unbelief. Prayer is the remedy for unbelief. And we're going to get to that in a second. But not only that, the disciples' lack of prayer reveals another way that unbelief plays out in our life. The disciples had attempted to cast out a demon and heal this boy, get this, without prayer. No prayer. No communicating with God. Jesus wasn't with them. They were disconnected from Jesus, and they tried to take on the enemy without praying. They try to do this in their own power. You see, often in the life of a follower of Jesus, in the life of a Christian, unbelief will play out with us trying to live by our own strength and live by our own power and rely on our own abilities. I mean, isn't this really why we don't pray. I'm sure, and this isn't like, this morning the goal of this is not to guilt trip everyone into praying more, so you'll go home and pray Sunday and Monday, and then you'll forget about it for next Sunday, okay? That, that, but, but if you ask any Christian, I think we all know, like, we need to be praying more, but it's just difficult, okay? And so when I ask people, hey, why aren't you praying? Or when I think about, men, why don't I pray? Most of the time it's well, I don't, have to, I don't have time, right? I don't have time to pray. We all have busy lives that are, that are full, right? We go from one thing to the next. Who has time to really pray? 
Or we will sometimes say, you know, when we ask, you know, if I ask someone, why don't you pray? It's just, it, it's hard to, to really stay focused that long, right? I mean, we're, we're so used to just things on screens and catching our attention. Like, how are we just supposed to sit there and just pray? Sometimes we think that, hey, I don't pray because I live in a society that has taught me this idea of instant gratification, and so I want to see immediate results, and prayer is one of those things that you have to labor in, and you don't always see immediate results from that. But that's not why you don't pray. Maybe you think it's boring. Maybe that's why you don't pray. That's not why you don't pray. You don't pray because of your unbelief. You don't pray because you don't think it's going to do anything. Or you don't pray because you think you've got this. Like you think in your own strength and in your own power and with your own abilities, you, you can handle this today. Another word for that is pride pride. The disciples' unbelief played out in a prideful attempt to operate in their own strength that ultimately led to failure. I mean, how many of your failures have come from your prideful neglect of prayer? They failed and they were, they were not able to heal this boy. And we see that prayer is what was lacking. For it is prayer that remedies our unbelief. It is prayer that kills and squashes our pride. Our unbelief, it's remedied through prayer because it is through prayer that we are turning and we're, we're trusting and we're relying on God and not ourselves. It's through prayer that we're, we're trusting God more than all the knowledge that we've accumulated. It's where we're trusting God more than all this strength that we've tried to build up. And we're trusting God more than this power that we can muster up on our own. But what does a prayer that remedies unbelief, what does that prayer really look like? And for us to see that, we've got to look at this desperate father. So look back at Mark 9, verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, look at the prayer of this father. I believe. Help my unbelief. Tim Keller, he observes this prayer, and he notes that it is honest, it is helpless, and it is hopeful. It's honest, it's helpless, and it's hopeful. I mean, it's honest, right? Like, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's honesty. That's not like acting like you got it all figured out and you got this all together. We often think that belief and unbelief can't exist together. But that is just not true. 
if we are honest, many times we believe what God says to us is true through his word. We believe it. And yet we, we battle unbelief at the same time. Our faith, our belief, it can, can waver, it can be strengthened, it can be weakened. And so this is an honest reality that every Christian can echo. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And this prayer, it's also helpless. It's a helpless prayer. The Father has come to the end of himself. He's exhausted you know, everything that he can in his own strength and with his own resources. He, he's tried to have followers of Jesus you know, heal his son. And he's come to Jesus as his and he pleads with them, Jesus, please, if you can do something, please do it. Please do what no one else can do. He's helpless. He's come to the end of himself. And this prayer, it's also hopeful. It's a hopeful prayer. He does believe. On one side, he does believe that, that, that Jesus can heal his son, and he's hopeful that, that he can do this, and he will do this. He's just still very honest. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's an honest, it's a helpless, it's a, it's a hopeful prayer. When's the last time you prayed an honest, a helpless, and a hopeful prayer? You can come to God honestly. Like, you don't need to, to, to always pray like these big elaborate prayers in the King James Version, right? And kind of like throw in all these big words you've learned and, and, and try to appear like you've got it all together. That's not the kind of prayer that God wants from us. Just be honest. Lord, I believe, but I'm really, I'm really struggling to believe in this. I'm really struggling to see this right now, Lord. Come honestly to God. Be real with God. Be honest with Him in your prayers. Come to God helpless, right? Prayer, it, it, it's, it's humbling for us. It, it, it's, instead of going and doing something in our own strength, we're stopping and we're saying, no, Lord, like this has to be of you. This has to be your strength. This has to be your power. And so the mere act of, of praying, God is changing you. He's, he's giving you a heart of humility. He's squashing your pride. Come to the Lord helpless and at the end of yourself. Could it be that in your helplessness, in your weakness, could it be that your unbelief and your wavering faith, could it be that it is leading you to find rest in a faithful God? Could it be that your weaknesses were meant to lead you to the strength of God? And then come to God in prayer with hopeful expectation that through faith all things are possible because all things are possible for God. You see, the remedy for our unbelief is coming to Jesus in honest, helpless, and hopeful prayer. But church, listen, as long as we are on earth, we will to some degree or another always have to deal with unbelief. But Christ has provided the remedy for unbelief. 
Because while, listen, while unbelief entered the world in the Garden of Eden, the remedy of unbelief was displayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus, before he was arrested and crucified, he prayed to the Father and he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he willingly went to the cross and paid the penalty our sin deserved. And three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And he ascended into heaven and he's now ruling and reigning over all things. And he's now praying for us. He's interceding for us. Like he prayed for Simon Peter. In Luke 22, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus knew that Peter's faith was not going to be perfect. He was still going to deny Jesus three times. The unbelief in Peter's heart was still going to play out with him denying to even associate himself with Jesus. But Jesus knew that while his faith wasn't going to be perfect, it, he was still going to struggle. It, his faith was going to persevere. Because Jesus was praying for him. And it is because of what Jesus accomplished for us, and it is because of how he is interceding for us, that our unbelief can be remedied through honest, helpless, and hopeful prayer. In Christ, our faith is never going to be perfect, but it will persevere. And it is through prayer that we turn and we trust God. It's the remedy for unbelief. And the more that we go to Jesus in prayer, and the more that we prayerfully read his word, the more we trust him, the more our faith grows, the more our unbelief is remedied, the more that we go to him. It's like a patient who comes to see me in the hospital. Like the more they come to me, the more they trust me. The more they get to know me, the more they trust me, right? The more they follow my instructions and watch it bring them health, the more they trust me. And so even if you've just got a little bit of faith and a lot of unbelief, just a little bit of faith, go to Jesus in prayer. Go to Jesus through the word and watch over and over again Romans 10:17 prove true that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ Jesus is helping our unbelief So when was the last time you prayed an honest helpless hopeful prayer I hope if it's been a while that today would be a good start back up for you. But think about your own life. How does unbelief play itself out in your life? Are you like the scribe who just wants to gain more knowledge, wants to win more arguments, wants to sit on the sideline, watch other people fail? Listen, gaining knowledge is great, but if prayer is not pursued along with it, your unbelief is not going to be helped. Pursue knowledge. Go after it. Study. Read but you better be pursuing Christ in prayer at the same time. Or maybe you can relate to the son who had seizures. You haven't even realized that you've been blinded to the glory of Christ. You've been naive to the fact that an outside influence has been keeping you from seeing the glory of God. 
If that's you today, go to God today in prayer and ask him to remove the blinders and to allow you to see Jesus for who he truly is. Or maybe you've been living like these failing disciples, like you've tried to go about your life in your own strength, in your own power, with your own abilities, and you failed over and over again. Your, your faith is now being shaken instead of being strengthened. If that's you, repent of your pride. Come to the end of yourself and commit to tapping into the power of God through prayer. Today, may we as a church like see this gift of prayer made possible through Jesus. And may we see it as our remedy for our unbelief. And may today we commit to regularly and consistently going to God and lifting up honest, helpless, and hopeful prayers. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray.